electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, it is the biggest debate in the market right now. Whether it is time to be cautious or time to be bullish, and why one of Wall Street's most prominent fund managers is making sort of a new call on stock. You'll hear from BlackRock's Rick Reeder in just a moment, and we will debate his view. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington is managing partner at Requisite Capital Management. Jim Labenthal, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova with us today. It's nice to see everybody. Let's go to the wall, take a look at where stocks are. We are lower across the board. Of course, we've been setting record highs almost every day, and it is the great debate whether it's time to be cautious or bullish. You take a look at the Russells up uh, one and two-thirds percent, uh, excuse me, is down, uh, and we're down across the board, as I said. So, Bryn, I, I turn to you first. There have been so many bullish signs in the market, and I'm going to read you a bunch of stats, and then I'm going to ask you the question. 184 S&P stocks hitting new 52-week highs last week. 95 S&P stocks, 95% are trading above their 200-day moving average, 90% above their 50-day moving average. Widening breadth is normally seen as a really good sign. So why do I feel like people are getting cautious now? Are you bullish or are you cautious? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a great question. It's not a binary. I'm always cautious. And right now I'm cautious in the short term because of the statistic you pointed out that, you know, 95% of stocks in the S&P are above their 200-day moving average. That's only happened a hand, like two or three times going back, you know, 10 years. And so from a short-term technical signal, you know, be cautious. I do think ultimately you have to manage expectations that looking at the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ on rolling five and 10 year basis, we are at peak five and 10 year returns going back to the S&P since the 30s to the NASDAQ since the 70s. The only other time we had higher five and 10 year returns in the NASDAQ was the tech bubble. And so I think investors looking at over the next five years should expect lower returns. And also, I think that the unintended consequences of the massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, you just can't understand. We can't understand or look around corners to see what those unintended consequences will be. So I'm definitely cautious. I'm going to stay invested. But I think that the easy returns have been made. And we've had a wonderful five and 10 years. But I think expect lower returns. The market's telling telling me that in spades. All right, Weiss, do you agree with that or or not? We're about to have, here's what I don't get, okay? We're about to have the greatest economic boom, arguably, of all of our lifetimes, right? That's what the forecast looks like. And yet I feel like people are now getting more cautious. Does that mean that all of that good feeling is already in the market? Is that really possible? Well, to Bryn's point, which I agree with, is that the the easy returns been made now gets a little tougher. So what I'm seeing in the market, and I have pared back my exposure, I would say across the board, but through a large swath of the portfolio, there's a flight to quality. So the stocks where you're making promises for not just tomorrow, but out 10 years, 15 years, they're going to continue to be under pressure. 
In terms of the boom that you're referencing, I think you want to be in some of those stocks, not all of them. Some are still undervalued. So there's some upside. But I don't know if this is occasioned, frankly, by work reopening, in other words, going back to the office, the hobbyists who gotten late now not taking losses and so just selling because they've been petering out, or if it's, you know, people worried about where rates are going to go. My view is that, as I said, go to quality, but that the market's going to get to the place it needs to be in terms of rates way before the Fed gets there, and that the Fed's got to start pulling back at some point. We've seen the inflation numbers. It'll be a key moment in the market early in May when we get both inflation and payroll. So if you see another million jobs are close to it, then I think you see the 10-year continue to move up in terms of the yield. And I think we've seen the bottom. So, yes, so I'm more cautious, but I do believe you could be bullish. I've got more cash than I've had. I don't know if I'm going to deploy it any point soon, but it's a question of where you are in the market, not if you're in the market. So, Joe, you sold Pinterest and you make the call that it's not the time to be in high valuation stocks. You have been coming around to the idea that technology was due for a bounce, which it is leading in the month. But do you draw the line that you just cannot own these high valuation stocks like a Pinterest and some of the other well-known brand names that we've been talking about for so many months now? The S&P 500 is currently 16% above its 200-day moving average. Generally, when the S&P is between 15 and 20% above that 200-day moving average, you tend to have a problem further advancing. So I look at everything from the perspective of not how much money can I make, but how much money potentially can I lose. The market gave me, in the first three and a half months, 11.5% for the S&P. All I am doing, to Stephen's point, it's not about being in the market. I'm in the market. I generally put on 29 stocks. I, right now, I have 28 stocks in my portfolio. But I'm just looking at the characteristics, Scott, of the stocks that I own. And I've been on this show advocating for Pinterest. I've been highlighting the 50 per, 50% annual sales growth over the last three years, 250% EPS growth in the last quarter. But guess what? When a stock goes down 11%, for no identifiable reason, and when it declines another 4% beyond that, I don't have the right anymore to extrapolate this fundamental confidence. I have to focus on risk management. And I think stocks that are triple-digit valuated, okay, I think those stocks right now, given the dynamics of the market, I think that's where you really have to be prudent, have to be very discerning. I don't think you could expect another 11.5% over the next three and a half months. You're going to be in the market, but I think you want to focus a little bit more on quality. And I also want to see if we get a further unwind in cryptocurrencies, what type of impact that's going to have on these higher valuation stocks. And I think you and I would agree, not a good one. Okay, so Jim, Farmer Jim, the 10-year I just noticed is at 158, okay? Rates are low. Economic growth is going to be unbelievable. Earnings are better than expected and are only going to continue to get better. I mean, I think that's the base case, right? You've been more bullish than everybody of late. Is everybody else wrong on the show today? What do you make of the commentary you've heard? Because it's overwhelmingly cautious. 
I, I think perspective matters here. I'm not a big fan right now of looking at the market overall. I think you have to look at the individual sectors. And let me let me step back for one second. Consolidation is healthy, all right? Consolidation, when big gains have been made and you go sideways or even down a little bit for a while, it sets up for the next leg higher. We saw that in large cap tech, and we see the bid now in Apple, in Google, in Amazon. Uh, those stocks consolidated over several months. I think you are on the cusp of going into a consolidation in financials. That's not a place I want to put money to right now. But as that consolidation goes on, maybe later on I'll trim from financials and put it there. Uh, Excuse me, trim from technology and put it in financials. The point being is you have to be sector specific. I agree with Joe, and this is no surprise, that the high flyers are too much. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Are we reflating reflating the economy, and do you expect interest rates to continue to rise? I do expect interest rates to continue to rise, but I don't expect them to matter over the next month. What I expect to matter is earnings. So let me let me just parse that for you, right? In the month of February and March, we were worried about interest rates going higher, the high flyers coming down. Now we're in earnings, all right? I think earnings will reset the bar higher, reset the price levels higher on a number of stocks. And over the next month, that means that interest rates aren't going to matter. But yes, we're reflating. And we're reflating, which means the economy is expanding and profits are going higher. So just to summarize, okay. interest rates going higher for the right reason. I ask you that question in part to get back at you about the banks, because, you know, yes, they've they've had a nice run. But if you expect everything that you just said to happen, aren't the bank stocks going to continue to go up? Listen, I have Citigroup. I have Goldman Sachs. I'm not adding to those. You saw me adding to Apple and Qualcomm when they were down. I think over the next month, look at, how the, look at how the bank stocks responded last week. Great earnings across the board. And not just great, I mean blowout. Look at Goldman Sachs' numbers, right? Um, look at Citigroup's numbers. And yet they really were kind of met on the week. I'm not sure that that was interest rates. I think that was just they were a little bit tired after the gains that they had had. And I think they may consolidate over the next month. So let's talk about the financials in May. And if I'm late to the party at that point in time, so be okay. it. Okay. All right. Let's bring in our headliner now. He manages two and a half trillion dollars as CIO of BlackRock's global fixed income. He is also the head of the global <laughs> allocation team. Let's welcome in Rick Reeder, who's back with us. Rick, welcome back. Thanks, Scott. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You really caught my eye today because when you were last with us, and let's call it six weeks or so ago, you said that it was, quote, the most exciting time in investing in your entire career. And then today, even though you've been bullish, you say this week, speaking, I suppose, of last week, feels like things are overheating. It feels a bit frothy. This is an eerie week for me. My antenna are up. We're watching the Fed with both eyes. What's the problem now, Rick? <laughs> Did I say all that? The, um, so I'd say a couple things. First of all, by, by the way, I still, I, I still think... This is the most exciting time for investing we've ever been involved with. I mean, I, the cross currents, the developments of technology and commerce are, are pretty incredible. By the way, there's also some private financings that are coming to the market that are that are fascinating. So I still think it's exciting. That being said, I did say all those things. And uh, listen, last week was really a bit eerie in that you had so you have an economy that is accelerating very quickly. Think about what happened last week. Retail sales were up almost 10%. Housing starts were up 19%. 
You've got an economy that is surging. You look at all the manufacturing surveys, non-manufacturing ISM hit a record. And then you've got the Federal Reserve that's still putting more liquidity into the system. So what happened last week? Rates dropped, equities rallied, commodities rallied. And, you, and then you saw the bank numbers that suggested, gosh, much bigger balance sheets because they're taking in so many deposits it started to feel a little bit, a little bit overdone, and and quite frankly, when you see the environment that we were that we're in, and as you described, where the economy is growing like it like it is, I'd actually like to see rates move higher because it's actually a sign of a healthy, of a healthy economy. And when it doesn't happen because we are putting so much liquidity into the system, that feels a bit overdone, and that's uh, that's why we pulled back a little bit in terms of our thinking. Isn't isn't this though why they in, they invented the word Goldilocks when talking about stocks and, and this kind of environment? Isn't isn't that what yeah, this is? A, yeah, except for I don't know when Goldie I don't know what the next iteration beyond Goldilocks is because it's a when you have rates that are that are moderate. We've been in that environment. I, I don't know how many straight months we've been on the show talking about how much we like stocks. And by the way, I still think stocks are the best when you go across the entire asset allocation suite. I still like stocks better than anything else. But gosh, you want to see some normalcy to the to these markets. You want to see, quite frankly, I'll feel more comfortable when the Fed starts to actually move and actually starts to describe tapering. And while the markets may have a tough time with that, I think changing that communication is really important because putting 120 billion a month into a system that is already flush with liquidity, you know, is a bit is overdoing it a bit. And that's where I think you need to see this pair back a little bit. By the way, just to put these numbers in a perspective. What happened last week, and the reason why I described it as a bit eerie, is you had you had another $85 billion get dispersed from Treasury into the system. And by the way, over the last, I think it's 50 trading days, about $700 billion through Treasury has gone into the system through the stimulus while the Fed is putting liquidity in. Anyway, point being, why do commodities rally? Why do equities rally? Why do Treasuries rally? Systems got, got too much liquidity in it today. Okay. And you're not the only one making that argument. And I, I really I need to point out, and it, it, in all fairness, you're, you're still 65 percent in equities. So it's it's not Correct. like you've had a 180 on, on equities. I, I totally get it. However, the environment that we're in, despite what you think should happen, the Fed repeatedly one after another Fed speakers, the, the Fed chair himself has said we are not doing anything anytime soon. If we let inflation run hot, so be it. So that's why you've got Jeremy Siegel at the Wharton School saying we're only in the third inning of the boom and that you essentially have nothing to worry about until the Fed does make that first signal that you want them to do earlier. And this becomes a bet. Is the Fed going to do it earlier than expected or not? And that's going to directly impact whether you should still be as allocated to equities or not, right? <clears throat> There's a lot to unpack there. So, so first thing I will say, you are right on the 65% allocation equities. It is the best asset that we have from an asset allocation point of view. However, there's a way to create your equity dynamic where you build a lot of convexity in the portfolio through call options, put options, et cetera. So while you can run a heavier equity allocation, you can put on a whole lot more protection in terms of convexity so you're, you're more insulated on the, uh, on the downside. By the way, I, I think the market's still going higher. However, 
you know, changing the mix a bit and creating more convexity in the portfolio, I think, is, is important. And listen, I would like to see the Fed change the communication. I don't think you can still provide accommodation. I actually think the Fed should still be accommodative. However, you look at the front end of the yield curve and you look at where the Fed is putting so much liquidity in the system, there's not enough assets to purchase in the front end. I do think the Fed should continue to be supportive of long-end interest rates. The thing that will really hurt the markets is if the 10-year backed up significantly, because that's where companies borrow, that's where homeowners borrow through the mortgage market. I think the Fed can evolve this policy, reduce some of the liquidity, reduce some of the incredible flood of liquidity in the front end of the yield curve that's been into money markets, bank deposits, there's not enough assets to support this. But then be supportive through quantitative easing of long-end interest rates because you want to keep that, keep long-end interest rates contained. If you do that, A, that's accommodative, and B, boy, that would be something that I think from a market's perspective we'd feel really good about. I mean, the reason why the 10-year is sitting at 158.7 is because the Fed chair has gone to great pains over the last couple of weeks to instill this belief in the market that they're not doing anything anytime soon. Right. There was that move much higher in much higher, but higher in rates a few weeks ago because it seemed like the market was trying to call the Fed chair's bluff that the market was going to force the Fed chair and inflation was going to force the Fed chair to have to act sooner than perhaps the market was was ready for. And I think the Fed chair has all but reversed that sentiment. Don't you agree? Uh, yes and no. I think I think there are parts of the yield curve that tend to be more reactive to where when you move and and uh, and how quickly you move interest rates, i.e., <clears throat> more the belly of the yield curve, more of the three-year part of the curve. Long-end interest rates are being supported by the fact that liquidity in the system is so large. I mean, by the way, the Fed's also purchasing a tremendous amount, <clears throat> but it's banks, it's international investors that are literally need to find <clears throat> need to find assets to purchase. And are going out the yield curve. It's pension funds that are purchasing long dated long dated assets. So I don't know that it's actually the Fed keeping long end interest rates contained, but clearly it's uh, clearly it's part of it. But like I say, if if you had a dynamic where rates were moving gently higher because the Fed was evolving that communication, boy, I think that'd be significantly more constructive for markets. Let's bring in the investment committee uh, because they all have questions for you. Bryn, you're first with Rick Reader. Yeah. Hi, Rick. Um, you hi, know, when talking about inf- inflation and, you know, when you see energy, agriculture, livestock, um, lumber, you know, all across the board, you, you clearly see inflation. But it seems that the Fed's, I'll say, nebulous view on inflation or how they're defining it um, is a mismatch to what's happening. It's not really an issue now. But do you think the Fed's I'll say nebulous definition or in my in my thought of inflation, the basket they're using is going to be the right basket going forward. Uh, I mean, I think you make exactly the right point. I mean, so if you think about what is inflation and what are we measuring and you think about, quite, quite frankly, what hurts people from a, you know, why do you want inflation higher? Do we want inflation higher in things like apparel, food, energy? Not really. It hurts the consumer. Do you want inflationary expectations for CapEx improving? Do you want inflationary expectations improving that, that companies put R&D in 100%? But the basket we're using, and I would argue today, using inflation targeting off a basket that quite frankly hurts the consumer, and particularly lower and middle income, I don't think is the right basket. And this is why I do think today, when you've got growth accelerating the way it is, and you see places like housing, et cetera, where you're getting some some tangible acceleration of prices, 
um, then I do think you're reaching a point where the, where the Fed can start to uh, start to reduce some of the some of the easy policy, particularly the liquidity that's in the system. But but I think you, you hit on exactly the right point around inflation. How we measure inflation and as a metric for evolving policy needs to be uh, needs to be changed. You said um, you're still you still expect stocks to go up. To what to what degree? Where where do you think the S and P is going to be at the end of this year? It's at forty one sixty today. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I listen. I think when you take this earnings yield and you take the free cash flow yield of the equity market, you know, we've done a lot of work recently. This is part of this idea of building some convexity in the portfolio. But could you run up another five to ten percent from here for sure? And I, you know, I still think. There are companies, part of as you stated my earlier comment about uh, about the exciting time for investing. I still think people say you want to buy tech or not buy tech. There are still companies that are growing and evolving. You, there was a guest on a half hour ago. I think went Sonos. There are some technologies that are changing and uh, and with some real growth attached to them that I think um, you know I think make it make the equity market continue to accelerate higher. But I think it'll be uneven and I think it'll be choppy from here given how much we've moved already. Okay, so Jim Leventhal, five to ten percent possibility yeah. between now and the end of the year, still still to go. It's hard in the same breath to tell people to be cautious, even if it is uneven, as Rick said. If that's going to be the end game, which you know I don't know if it's the base case or the best case. It's hard to be overly negative in this kind of environment, even if you feel we're a bit frothy. So I, I completely agree with what you just said, Scott, and I'm going to segue this to Rick by saying the following. The thing that would really worry me is if the Fed uh, started to remove its accommodative stance, as you're alluding to. And partly the, and until that happens, we can talk about consolidation or sector rotation or style rotation, but ultimately, I feel the, the Fed's support to the market is what matters. When that starts to weaken, the problem to me isn't just higher interest rates. It's the potential for higher credit spreads, which I think you'll admit are pretty darn tight right now. Does that sort of double whammy worry you at all, Rick, about not just higher interest rates, but higher credit spreads, too? Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think I think you said it right. Although I, you know, I don't think the Fed needs to necessarily tighten per se. And and you know, this is where I think the nuance is. I think I think the liquidity is too high. And I think that you know, continuing to support the front end of the yield curve, if long end interest rates stay stay supported, particularly when the Treasury's got to issue, we think oh, it could be net of two and a half trillion net of what the Fed purchases next year. That is a lot of paper. And, and to your point, what that, what that can happen is you can create a crowding out that includes widening out credit spreads. So this is why I think the Fed should necessarily tighten. And I agree with, the, with, with this policy around be accommodative, support the fiscal policy until we get to an unemployment rate or until you get to maximum employment. However, you can adjust the policy and you could be, listen, I think this Fed was incredibly creative in March and April of last year. And I think not necessarily tightening per se, but evolving the policy so that you don't create that crowding out that you talked about. That don't that doesn't create this movement higher in long end interest rates, which is where velocity takes place, which is where financing takes place in a modern economy. That that's where I think they, they could adjust. Do you do you look at what's taking place in Bitcoin or the SPAC market or NFTs, which have cooled? 
to say the least of late and say that is a sign of some unwind of euphoria? Does it mean anything to the way equity investors should be thinking about the market? <clears throat> Scott, I think that's definitely right. I think, you know, a lot of what, what has started to happen, and this is part of why I made that, made that comment about the antenna going up, is, you know, some of what, when you, when you pump the system with this much liquidity and say, gosh, I can't buy treasuries, you know, we think about fixed income agency mortgages, which are extraordinarily tight, have no, have no value. And think about munis, which are incredibly low yields and, uh, you know, have duration risk, interest rate risk to them. <clears throat> so you start saying, where do I go? How do I generate a return? And then it becomes too, almost too easy as you see these accelerating increases in price. So I think no, that's part of the reason why the antenna goes up. Do I think because the SPAC market has cooled a bit um, that, gosh, I wouldn't buy equities today? No, I still think you'd be in equities. But like I say, a lot of this froth is uh, it's a bit overdone. And this is part of why, gosh, you got to think about the portfolio. Where's the quality? Where's the growth? I know that's the way Jim described it. The earnings numbers will continue to be good. And so be in the equity market. But I think be, be sensitive to, A, do you have convexity in the portfolio? And B, you know, what, what do you own today and what is going to be, I think, a harder market from here? Now you, you barely reduced your exposure to tech. We're talking, you know, 16% to 14%. You barely raised your exposure to financials and some of the other cyclical stocks to 9% versus 7%. So it's not like your overall market view is, is truly changing all that dramatically, even as you are a bit cautious and, and you're not the only person to maybe have that perspective at the current time. Steve Weiss, give me a quick question for, for uh, readers so I can get Joe in as well before we take a break. Sure. What are the chances that the Fed follows through with what you label as, you know, the the optimum path, which is removing some liquidity by reducing the bond buying and yet keeping rates, longer rate support? That's essentially Goldilocks on ecstasy. So what are the chances <laughs> that happens? So, listen, I mean, I, it, I mean, if you follow the current communication, it doesn't it doesn't appear like that's going to happen. And it appears that it's going to go down the line of, line of just being easier for longer and following a traditional path. So, you know, this is part of the part of the view that, gosh, you know, ride alongside, you know, this equity market for a period of time um, and then hope that policy evolves. But I mean, today, quite frankly, it doesn't look like policy is is moving in a more dynamic uh, in a more dynamic way and it looks like we're going to go down the existing path which like i say is um you know we watch every day steve i mean every day we look at short end and we look at where there's not enough assets to purchase in the front end of the yield curve we look at this immense amounts of liquidity and look at the bank numbers last week and people focus on the earnings but look at the asset growth and it's not loan growth it's asset growth that is in securities because of this, yes, the system is stuffed with so much security. So that's got to rotate into, you know, where do I get yield and into the treasury bar? And some of that is just, I would argue, a bit overdone. And by, by the way, could it continue? So it, it, it certainly looks like it's going to continue for, for a bit of time. You told me 5 to 10% would not be out of the uh, cards for, for the S&P. Where's the, where's the 10 year going to end the year if, this, if the stock market can give me 5 to 10% more? Listen, I mean, I, I think I think the um, the ten years going higher in yield. I think it's going to be uh, you know depends what happens to the policy as we describe. But I still think the ten years going to see a two percent number in terms of in terms of where we go. Which, like I say, and I think you started early on, you know the two percent ten year note. And by the way, it's not just the two percent ten year note. It's real rates. So real rates today are at negative seventy five basis points in the ten year. I mean that's that number is insane. Well, I mean that average over time 
historically has been about 2%. Last 20 years has been about positive, positive 2%, positive one and a quarter. Boy, if we back up to a 2%, you think about it, that's still amazingly accommodative. But again, I think we should get there in what is a normal, a reasonable way than, uh, than like I said, we saw the last few days. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what tech stocks do in, in that kind of environment and where the 5 to 10% actually comes from, whether it's from this, Agreed. you know, rotation move that goes back into sort of cyclical, more value, more recovery type stocks. Joe, quick with Rick Reader, please. Well, Rick, on that move back to 2%, how much of where we're sitting right now where rates have pulled back is the fact that outside of the U.S., the virus continues to rage and you're seeing a lot of demand for safe haven tre uh, treasuries because of that? It's definitely right. I mean, we were looking at the data in India today. I mean, there, there is some concerning, particularly in some of the emerging markets, see in India, see parts of Canada that are, that are concerning. You're, you're definitely right. Um, you know, the general trend you know, look at, you know, we think there's going to be improvement in Europe, but but there's definitely some concern out there in, the, in, in you know, how we develop and the variants around it. Like I say, that, you know, this is part of why when you think about the markets and part of why equities can continue to be supported is high quality assets. If you said, where is there a bubble in the world today? It's it's high quality assets. It's when we in fixed income, it's double A, triple A assets that are trading at levels. I was going through some of the numbers today on asset backs. Some of the some of the high quality uh, prime auto auto financing student loan financing, AAA assets high quality assets are unbelievably rich and uh, and that you know those valuations you know despite the fact that they're they're not going to bust in turn from a default perspective, but like you say the flood into those high quality assets um, has been uh, just because the liquidity is so large as uh, is where I think there is literally no value in the in the markets today. Well, good stuff. We'll leave it on that note. Rick, uh, really good conversation. I appreciate your time today. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jim. That's BlackRock's Thanks, Rick sir. Reader joining us with yet another provocative note and a commentary around it. Bryn, you, you told us at the very top of the show that you agree in many ways with Rick Reader. Uh, you bought more Goldman Sachs or at least bought the stock again. So that's even more evidence. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I, Goldman Sachs, if you go back with most financials from 2009, really to December of 2020, had been range bound. So 11 long years. It broke out in December of 2020. I wanted to have some Goldman Sachs specific exposure before earnings. So I bought it before earnings. I think that Goldman Sachs still has the best calling card in the business, and they have the right mix, right? They don't have a lot of this loan growth to deposits, which the deposits at the big banks have just exploded, as we've just talked about. And Goldman Sachs has that right mix of trading, investment banking, Marcus, the Apple Gold, you know, the Apple Goldman Sachs card. So I think that it's got good runway. And if they did $40 this year in earnings at a 10 multiple, you know, that could be 400. And I also think one other thing it's important to note is that you know, the NASDAQ and the 10-year, you know, 10-year prices are almost trading at a one correlation. So I thought this was a good time also to get back into some financials as the 10-year as the had moved back in price, or yield, back in yield. Yeah, yeah. you also bought Coinbase. And Joe, I, I wanted to update our viewers because you said you were going to buy it. I think 320 is where you, where you ended up getting filled um, on that, 320, 325 or so. Where, where's that trade today? Are you happy that you made that move, given all the volatility that we're seeing today around Bitcoin? Uh, I feel a little uncomfortable with the position. I'll be very candid with you. Three and a quarter is where I got in. Uh, I'll watch the position closely. I actually think Coinbase is trading well relative to where cryptocurrencies are trading. But I think longer term, the right way to think about uh, Coinbase as an exchange is, is not to just think about it.
or it's cryptocurrencies. I think they'll further introduce products like uh, digital security tokens, similar to what's out there right now, where you could digitally trade Tesla and have the availability 24-7 and no geographic barriers. So why not think about Coinbase as having that ability to attract other assets, including equities themselves? All right. I'm glad we updated that. All right. We will take a break. We'll come back. We have big earnings to watch for this week and what is a very heavy week for earnings. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. A former sheriff's deputy in Texas who was accused of shooting and killing three people has been arrested. A manhunt had been underway for nearly a day before Stephen Broderick was arrested without incident. Foxconn and the state of Wisconsin have reached a new deal on sharply reduced tax breaks for a scaled-back manufacturing facility. The original contract offered nearly $4 billion in incentives. The new deal is reportedly worth more than $10 million. Russian opposition leader Alexei Novani will be moved to a hospital in another prison. That's according to government officials. Novani is now in the third week of a hunger strike, and one of his doctors said that he could be near death. And in South Africa, smoke from wildfires there has turned the sky orange in parts of Cape Town. Strong winds, as you can see in this video here, fanning the flames. 250 firefighters are battling that fire. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay, for help, we appreciate it. Thank you. That's Rahel Solomon joining us there. All right, let's talk about Coca-Cola. Earnings beat this morning. The company saying demand has now returned to pre-COVID levels. Bryn, you own the stock. Uh, 6% organic growth. And that's incredibly strong for Coca-Cola. They didn't boost the guide, though. So how should investors view this one from here? Yeah, I mean, I, I bought it at 48. I think it's going to go to 60. It's got a nice yield. I also think it's a great emerging market play. Their China unit case volume grew 9%. Um, they're also going to be launching what's called Topa Chico Hard Seltzer, which is already in Latin America, Europe. It's coming to the U.S. So I think they have a great product line. And if you want to have, like, a, we'll say, as Tom Lee says, a granny shot um, reopening trade, I think Coke is um, one of the best names to own. Okay, Joe, CMG, that's Chipotle, of course, on Wednesday. Mm. Uh, off to a pretty good start this year. It's up 12 percent. What about now from here? Uh, I'm staying with it just recently, an all-time high. This is a company through digital transformation that's seeing top line and margin expansion. I expect this to be uh, a quality quarter that they're going to report. And the digital transformation is in the early stages. It was less than 5% of revenues pre-pandemic. Now it's running slightly below 15%, further upside uh, and contribution to come. Stay with it. Okay. Up next, we have the big ETFs to watch today. Before the break, though, let me show you the S&P sectors. It is a decidedly down day for stocks. It has been a record-setting run, though. There's your S&P. It is, uh, well, real estate's the best of the worst today. Technology is, in fact, the worst. That sector down one and a quarter percent. We're back after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. 
If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. ETF Edge Time with Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Hello there. And folks, the important thing about ETF Edge today, we're going to have John Hollier on. He's the global head of Vanguard Fixed Income Group today. He's going to be talking about good reasons to own and continue to own bonds. It's been very controversial, particularly high yield bond funds. That's the important thing. That's what people are asking about right now. They're insisting that there's good reasons to continue to stay in bonds in general. We'll be talking with John particularly about that old saw, the 60-40 stock bond split. A lot of people feel that that is no longer applicable, particularly with people living a lot longer. We'll talk with him about that, as well as Vanguard's new actively managed bond ETF that they've got out last week, which has already attracted $100 million in assets. This is the biggest man at Vanguard covering all of the big bond ETFs and the bond funds in general. A man who manages $2 trillion in assets for Vanguard. Tune into ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time when John will go a lot deeper into what he's telling Vanguard investors to do with their bond fund. And remember that old 60-40 stock bond split, that's going to be a big question. ETFedge.cnbc.com, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, we will be right back uh, just after this. Rahel is back with us with our calls of the day. Which ones are we highlighting? Uh, quite a few interesting calls. So let's start with some of the tech names. Scott City is naming Applied Materials a top pick, saying that it likes the company's diversified installed base and that equipment makers overall will benefit from the ongoing chip wars. You can see shares are down about three and a half percent. Susquehanna downgrading Qualcomm to neutral from positive. So it sees risks in growing competition and royalty fights and phones and 5G technology, plus long term headwinds resulting from current overordering and elevated pricing trends. Alphabet, we've got quite a few to get to today, is seeing its price target jump at JPM from 23.90 a share to 25.75. Scott, that's on valuations and also short and long-term growth drivers. Peloton shares, of course, lots of news today. They're down today amid those safety concerns surrounding its treadmill product. Now, despite that news, JPM says that Peloton is still a best idea. In fact, by the pullback, shares are down almost 10 percent. B of A also taking note of those safety issues, cutting its price target to 150 from 175. Peloton down 30 percent this year after its run of 430 percent in 2020. So quite a different year for Peloton, at least so far. And Home Depot's price target bumps up 15 bucks to 375, also at B of A. Firm noting a supportive housing market, shares hitting a fresh all-time high today before it turned negative. You can see it's down about a quarter of a percent. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay, thank you very much for that, Rahel Solomon. All right, Jim, I'm focused on Qualcomm. 
the stock you've told our viewers repeatedly, you need to buy it. (laughs) Well, Susquehanna says downgrade to neutral. They cut the price target by 20 bucks to 155. What do we do now, Jim? Yeah, I'm going to hold back on the I'm going to hold back on the snark, but I just I don't know what this guy is don't. seeing. I mean, first don't off, don't hold the back, off, Farmer the Jim. Off. Just don't hold back. Uh, you know what? That was a that was a setup, Scott. It was a setup. Hang on, brother. Look, it stocks off 20 percent in three months, and now you downgrade it. Uh, it's got a peg ratio of 0.9. Did I mention that 5G is still in the early stages of rollout? That their uh, IP portfolio has high margins. I really, I just don't get anything about this call. Uh, I continue to buy the stock. I continue to recommend buying the stock. Let's talk in a month. Okay. All right. We will. Producers, mark it down. We'll be back with Farmer Jim in a month. Alphabet, another record high. Price target, as we said, JP Morgan goes to 25.75. Joe, you own this one. Talk to me. I do. Well, it's about the cloud business, but it's also about the acceleration in their capital allocation strategy. In 2018, they bought back $9 billion worth of stock. They bought back $18 billion in 2019, and they got up to $31 billion in 2020. So uh, the buyback that's kind of emulating the model of Apple has been one of the reasons why I have owned it and will continue to do so. All right, year-to-date, up 30%, been a big winner. Last year's laggard out of the fangs, a big winner so far. All right, Ask Halftime's next. Send your questions in by video. We'll play them on the air. Email us, askhalftimecnbc.com. We'll be right back. Okay, Farmer Jim to you from Stephen Woodbridge, Canada. Thank you for the question. Does Jim like Disney for the long term? Do you? I I do very much. Uh, Very positive article in Barron's over the weekend, by the way, but this is a great double threat. You've got the streaming business that continues to grow at a gangbusters rate. And I think Disney is soft selling us on when that turns profitable. They say 2024. I wouldn't be surprised if it was early 2023. And then the theme parks are reopening. That's the double threat. Earnings are are set to really get uh, quite juicy. Maybe not this year, but next year. Um, You should be in this for the long term. All right, Steve Weiss to you from Dilip in California. I've been riding Cleveland Cliffs from $13 in February. Should I hold or take the amazing gain and run? It is down month to date. It still is up about 20% year to date, and it has been a farmer gym name. As you know, Steve Weiss, you're unofficial financial advisor. What do you do here? I'm staying with it. As a matter of fact, I added to the iron ore trade on last week, Friday as well, with Vale, which gives you a bigger yield and a a better just embedded return because of the buyback. The company told us what the numbers are going to be for the first quarter. They report this week, Thursday, I believe, and they beat guidance. BNP downgraded it today, but they downgraded it after upgrading it January 19th which was at a higher price. And when does the stock look better? It looks better today, having greater clarity on the economy. So I think this continues to go. Jim's price target's 25, which means I'll sell 24 and a half. I'm staying with it. You should too. <laughs> I was going to say, I was waiting for you to give Jim props on this, but I must have I missed it. All right, <laughs> Joe, to you. Emerging markets from Vince in Florida. Says, I purchased an emerging market fund back in November, had a nice run upward until February. It's since pulled back. I've not heard any mentions of EM on your show lately. So what do you what do you think of of the future of EMs? Good question. What's the answer? 
Great question. So let's make some mentions of it. Let's answer the question two ways. From a long-term portfolio construction capacity, you need to think about the uh, emerging markets in a rebalancing mannerism and also embracing technology uh, in their uh, economy. So I love it from that perspective. In the short-term nature of owning something like the IEMG, which I own, it's a way to play a recovery potentially in a name like Alibaba, which is 5% of that individual emerging market ETF. All right. We will come back with final trades. Dow looks like it's down about 200. Same amount the NASDAQ is down today. So it's a down day for stocks. We're back right after this. Question for the Halftime Investment Committee? If you want to send us a video, we could play it on air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. All right, guys, let's do final trades now. Brand you are up first. Yeah, um, Jeppy, the J.P. Morgan covered call strategy, it's a core part of our allocation. It's got three sources of returns, um, the high quality, low volatility stocks, um, dividends and the covered call overlay. It's a great evergreen strategy. Okay, Farmer Jim. I know this is boring, but Apple, I see this going above 140 into earnings just like it did last quarter. It seems like a no brainer to me. All right, big event tomorrow. You've bought it twice uh, recently, so putting your money where your mouth is, I suppose. All right, Steve Weiss. Micron sold off after earnings. The stock should be at 100, not at 85. I would add to it here. All right, quickly, Joe. J.M. Smucker, long. All right, guys, good to see everybody. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.